Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am now in Acts chapter 4. I'm going to do the first 22 verses of Acts chapter 4. Those verses tell the story of how Peter and John were arrested by the Sanhedrin, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem, and put on trial for the healing of the man lame from birth. That healing took place at the beautiful gate at the temple in the previous audio, in the previous chapter, Acts chapter 3. So we start with verse 1. Now as they were speaking to the people, as they as Peter and John, Peter does most of the speaking here. He, John is quiet. He watches. Uh, but he was involved in the preaching, the evangelism going on in the temple in the day earlier, and he was involved in the healing of the lame man. But Peter does all the talking in Acts chapter 3, and, he's, and he takes the lead in speaking to the Sanhedrin. Now as they... As Peter and John were speaking to the people, the priest, the commander of the temple police, and the Sadducees confronted them, interrupted their evangelistic endeavors. The leader, the priest, are the people that, of course, are official children of Aaron that run the sacrificial system in the temple. The commander of the temple police were probably Levites who were in charge of security of the temple under the control of the priest. The Sadducees were a party a religious party, most of whom they were mostly priests, but not necessarily, I suppose. And they had certain beliefs that were not, that didn't fit with the belief of the Pharisees. We don't see any mention of the Pharisees here, but we'll basically, I like when we see these expressions, the priests, the elders, the rulers and all, I just like to lump them all together and say Jewish leaders, because it's hard to distinguish them, and they're not mutually exclusive most of the time. Now, the priest were probably those who were serving that week in the temple precincts. Remember, courses of priests came from out of town and came down the Jericho Road to Jerusalem to serve there. I think it was a two-week stint is what they had. And so they might have been there. But at any rate, it doesn't really matter. The point is, is that these people were there. They were big shots, and they had political and religious authority, and they were trying to stomp out the message of message of Christ. Now, these Sadducees that confronted Jesus... They, as the NIV Study Bible says, that they were a sect, a Jewish sect, as the Pharisees were a sect. They did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. They were very, of course, challenged and upset by the fact that the disciples were claiming that Jesus was resurrected. This is Adam Clark points this out. Acts 23.8, Luke tells us this, For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection and no angel or spirit, but the Pharisees affirm them all. So the Sadducees not only didn't believe in resurrection, they didn't believe in angels, they didn't believe in spirits. They sound like liberal rationalists. They didn't believe in a personal Messiah. Again, sounds like liberals. Their whole system was challenged by Jesus' messiahship, as Adam Clark said. So they're the ones that are mentioned here because they're the ones that are really getting it right in the head from Jesus. Everything that Jesus taught really contradicted the, the Sadducees. Not so much. I hate to say that, that Jesus didn't contradict the Pharisees too much. I mean, after all, they killed him. But... The Pharisees believed in the resurrection of the dead, and they believed in all the Old Testament scriptures like Jesus did, but the Sadducees didn't. So they also believed that their current time under the Jewish order was the Messianic age, not the age of Jesus, but the age of the Jews and uh, the Sadducees and the and the Pharisees, the age of the Sanhedrin, the age of the, the of the temple. That's disgusting to think that that age was the age of the Messiah. They controlled the temple, of course. The high priest was a Sadducee. And the high priest presided over the Sanhedrin. Most of the Sanhedrin was Sadducees. So here we have the first big confrontation between the Sadducees and the apostles. Acts chapter 4, verse 2. Well, I need to go back and read the end of verse 1. 
The Sadducees confronted them. And then verse 2, because they were provoked that they were teaching the people and proclaiming the resurrection from the dead, using Jesus as the example. As I just said, they didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead, and so that really griped them. Now notice that the disciples were preaching the resurrection from the dead. How often is that done in our evangelistic appeals? Do we talk about the resurrection from the dead? That's the whole central crux of the gospel. You've got to talk about that. If Jesus didn't die, we are of all, didn't, excuse me, if Jesus wasn't raised, then we are all, of all people, most miserable if there's no resurrection from the dead. And notice that they were not just proclaiming Jesus' resurrection from the dead. They were proclaiming everybody's resurrection from the dead, using Jesus as the example. Jesus was the exemplar. He rose, we rose. Now, this is a great verse, and I wish I had this verse when I was in a big rip-roaring controversy with heretical preterists who claimed that people are not, that Christians are not resurrected from the dead physically. If Jesus is the example of how people are resurrected from the dead, well, how was Jesus raised from the dead? Physically, likewise, we are physically going to be resurrected. And these heretics, and that's all they are, is these hyper-preterist heretics, oh, I can just hear the, the flames flickering now. They deny the obvious. They deny what every creed and every Christian is, every Orthodox Christian has confirmed for two millennia is that the body will be resurrected from the dead. And they, this was being preached at the very beginning, every, right after Pentecost. Resurrection of the dead. Physical resurrection of the dead. We go to verse 3. So they seized them, that's the Jewish leaders, seized them, Peter and John, and put them in custody until the next day since it was already evening. Now that custody was could have been in a jail, I guess. John Gill said it wasn't. It was in the custody of a group of men, of a couple of big shots. I don't know. Who knows? Nobody knows. But they were put uh, in custody. Uh, why? Because it was already evening. Uh, the temple gates would be closed by then, and they couldn't ca carry on their trial there with the Sanhedrin. All judgments concerning life and death must be conducted during daylight hours, according to the NIV Study Bible, and that was the Jewish law, but they didn't seem to care too much when they kept Jesus up all night in the middle of the night, harassing him, inquiring him, behind, interrogating him behind closed doors, kind of like the impeachment going on right now in Washington. We'll close the doors. We won't let the public see it. We'll have a star chamber. Well, that's kind of the idea. You, you want trials to be conducted in, in, in daylight hours so everybody can see it, so there's less chance of railroading somebody. And as we'll see later, the people were behind Peter and John, and they, the Sanhedrin couldn't do any hanky-panky stuff here. They might get themselves in trouble with the people, so they said, okay, we'll just hold them over till the next day and do it legally in the broad daylight, Acts 4, verse 4. But many of those who heard the message believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. Notice it's the number of the men, which means that women and children were not included in this number of 5,000. Now, there's a ambiguity here. Does that 5,000, is that added to the first 3,000 that heard Peter and John uh, that, that were saved on Pentecost? can't remember. I don't have the... Uh, here it is, Acts chapter 2, verse 41. So those who accepted the, his message were baptized. This is after Peter's Pentecostal sermon, and that day about 3,000 people were added to them. So they got 3,000 people in one day, which is amazing. And now it says, now the number of men came to about 5,000. The question is, were 2,000 people added to the original 3,000 for a total of 5,000? That's what John Gill, that's what Adam Clark believes. He says it's an unlikely that 5,000 people were converted on one day. 
But John Gill says, no, it's 8,000. You take the 3,000 in Acts 2, add the 5,000 here in Acts 4, and you get 8,000 altogether. Who knows? The point is, is people were getting saved by the bucket load, which is really exciting. I wish it would happen here in America. And, of course, you remember now, it's more than just 5,000 or 8,000 because the women and children, they were probably getting saved too. The church grew by leaps and bounds in the early part of its history, as recorded in Acts. We look forward a little bit in Acts 5.14. Believers were added to the Lord in increasing numbers, crowds of both men and women. There's the women. Acts 6.7, so the preaching about God flourished. The number of the disciples in Jerusalem multiplied greatly, and a large group of priests became obedient to the faith. So even the priests were getting saved. We go to verse 5 in Acts 4. The next day, their rulers, elders, and scribes assembled in Jerusalem. Again, these are the leading people. NIV Study Bible says rulers, elders, and scribes were the three groups making up the Sanhedrin. The elders, uh, excuse me, the rulers, John Gill says, were the ecclesiastical rulers, the chief priests. The elders were the political leaders, I would would think, in uh, in the Sanhedrin. The scribes were the lawyers, the people expert in the law, who had private jobs a lot of times. They were notaries. They would copy laws down and so forth. And they were experts in the law and sometimes called lawyers. So you got religious leaders, the priesthood, you got political leaders, the elders, and you got and you got theological leaders, if you were legal legalist scholars, all of them in the Sanhedrin. And it's interesting. We know that the Sanhedrin was Israel's supreme court, as the NIV Study Bible points out, but its exact, this is what the Encyclopedia Britannica says about the Sanhedrin, its exact nature, composition, and function remain a subject of scholarly investigation and controversy. Here's another quote from the Encyclopedia Britannica. The composition of the Sanhedrin is also in much dispute, the controversy involving the participation of the two major parties of the day, the Sadducees and the Pharisees. Some say the Sanhedrin was made up of Sadducees, some of Pharisees, others of an alternation or mixture of the two groups. Now, that's something I didn't realize in my previous audios. I just assumed that the Sadducees were in charge. I think that's the majority opinion, but apparently that people, the scholars controvert that today. Doesn't really matter. Is the, All the big shots were there. They knew this was a big problem they had. The next day, of course, was because Peter and John were in custody the previous night. Acts 4, verse 6. I need to pick up verse 5 again. The rulers, elders, and scribes assembled in Jerusalem. And in verse 6, with Annas the high priest, Caiaphas, John, and Alexander, and all the members of the high priestly family. Now, Luke is dropping some names here, and the purpose of all this is to show that Peter and John, those unlettered, ignorant, illiterate Galilean fishermen, are up against the cream of Jewish society, the big shots of big shots. Annas was a former high priest. He was the high priest from 86 through 15 before he was deposed by the Romans. He, of course, was one of the priests that examined Jesus in his house on the morning of Good Friday, early, early morning of Good Friday in the nighttime. His son-in-law was Caiaphas. He was the one who also examined Jesus that night after Jesus left Annas' house. He was the current high priest, also known as Joseph. He ruled from 8018 to 8036. Then we have two mysterious figures here, John. Oh, first of all, let me point out to you why Annas was still called the high priest, like we call President Carter or President Clinton. President, even though they're not president anymore, is because they just keep the title. We, you know, that's, we do that, and so, so did the Jews. They called him the high priest, even though he was not in office at that time. Caiaphas was. Now, who were John and Alexander? 
Here's some options from the NIV Study Bible. It could have been John, the son of Annas, who was appointed high priest in AD 36. Of course, we're not in AD 36 now. We're somewhere around AD 30, probably. Depends on when you believe Jesus was crucified. If he was AD 33, nonetheless, John wouldn't be there. But nonetheless, he was in the family, and he was a big shot, and he's about to take office, if that's him. Or it could be Johanan ben Zakkai. He was president of the great synagogue after the fall of Jerusalem in 8070. He was a big shot. Nothing is known about who this guy John is, says Jameson Fawcett and Brown. And, of course, I don't know either. But the point is he was a big shot. It needed to be mentioned by name. That's what Luke was trying to do here is to show all the big shots were there. Alexander. He's not further identified anywhere. As the NIV study Bible and Jameson Fawcett and Brown say, Adam Clark says he was probably Alexander Lysimachus one of the richest Jews of his time who made great presence to the temple and who was highly esteemed by King Agrippa. Maybe. If so, oh boy. <laughs> Peter and John did not have friends in high places. And all the members of the high priestly family. We go to verse 7 in Acts 4. After they had Peter and John stand before them, they, that's the Sanhedrin, asked the question, By what power and what name have you done this? Now, here's some options as to what the high priest was searching for, according to John Gill. By what power means by what medicine? Whew, I don't think so. What medicine can make a lame man walk? What kind of medical power did you cause this man to walk? I think that's pretty ridiculous, actually. I think the second option is more likely by what power, meaning the devil. This is what I think the high priest was aiming at. And Adam Clark agrees. He says this, quote, it is very likely that they believe the whole to be the effect of magic. And, as all intercourse with familiar spirits and all spells, charms, etc. were unlawful, they probably hoped that on the examination this business would come out and that then these disturbers of their peace would be put to death. So they say, well, what power? You know, when you're working with Beelzebul, Jesus, they wanted to get around to blaspheming the Holy Spirit again. Or it could be option three, by what power they're saying, uh, they're saying, what pretended use of God's name are you using? Which is basically the same thing, thing as the devil did it. Just, Jesus is just not admitting it. He's going around healing people by the power of devil, but he doesn't give the devil credit for what he's doing. But So anyway, we can, after looking at all the options, I think we can say the Sanhedrin was trying to accuse Jesus of doing that miracle by the devil. What name, by what name have you done this? That means by what, well, it's options. It could be by what God have you done this? Or by what authority? Adam, uh, uh, Adam Clark says that this is what it is. Who gave you the authority to preach publicly? That, belongs, that authority belongs to the Sanhedrin. We didn't give you a license to preach. Sounds like the Chinese communist. Sounds like the, you know, the ACLU, the Anti-Christian Liberties Union. Now notice that the Sanhedrin said, what and what name have you done this? They didn't deny that it was done. They could not as, deny, as we'll see later, that the lame man, the man lame from birth had not been healed because everybody saw it. So they knew the miracle had been done. In fact, in verse 16, as we'll see when we get there in just a minute, they admitted it. Let me read verse 16 in Acts 4, saying, What should we do with these men for an obvious sign evident to all who live in Jerusalem has been done through them, and we cannot deny it. They were. That's the thing. When you got evidence, you got somebody by the proverbial gonads. That's what I love about law, and I love about evidence. John, the, the book of John, he was real big on evidence. This is the same John who was here in this, and and he and he saw that this lame man's evidence was being used, and it flummoxed the Sanhedrin and got them sprung. 
Maybe that's why he was so big on evidence when he wrote the Gospel of John and testimony. Now notice that the Sanhedrin, upon uh, in all their questioning of Jesus, whose power, what name did you do this with? They showed absolutely no compassion for the lame man. We'll see in a minute the lame man was standing right there. They didn't care. They didn't care that a man who'd been lame for over 40, over 40 years was walking because they were SOBs of the highest order. Verse 8, chapter 4, Then Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit and said to them, Rulers of the people and elders. Now, of course, there's a little bit of charismatic cessationist controversy in here because a lot of people say filled means under the control of the Holy Spirit. So Peter right then was all of a sudden filled with the Holy Spirit. And of course, fillings happen periodically. And therefore, there is no unique filling of the Holy Spirit as is recorded in Acts 2. And so that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is only for people in Acts 2 and also in Acts Acts 8. 10 and 19, I beg to differ. Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit. Does that just mean right then he was controlled with the Holy Spirit? Well, let me read you, well, let me point out to you what the Greek word is there for filled. It's pleisthes, which is an aorist passive participle. And I saw that it was a passive participle, and I started thinking, well, maybe that's referring back to Pentecost, as in Peter, having been filled, i.e. in the past at Pentecost, having been filled with the Holy Spirit, then answered them, referring to the past, not to the present right there. And the heirs can do that, you know, obviously. It's a point in, heirs refers not to tense, but the aspect, that is it continuous, is it intermittent, or is it point in time? Well, it could very well be point in time. Well, I had a question mark on that, and I just recently checked it up, and I said, well, you know, i got an idea. I'm going to go look and see if I can find a translation that agrees with me. And lo and behold... Young's literal translation says this, Then Peter, having been filled with the Holy Spirit, said unto them, Having been filled. So you say it could have been having been filled at Pentecost. So all of you anti-charismatic people who want to run together the, 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 the experiences of regeneration and filling of the Holy Spirit, and you want to deny a separate subsequent baptism of the Holy Spirit, subsequent to conversion, all of you who want to do that, don't quote this verse in favor of your position, because i got an answer for you. Now, of course, it's not dispositive either way. You can't prove anything either way, because it could have been having been filled with the Holy Spirit right there at that point in time. But it could be in the past. It could be in the present. And my option is everybody's as good as your option. All right, so anyway, Peter, whenever he was filled with the Holy Spirit, said, rules of the people and the elders, and he gets ready to make his defense. Now, Jesus, before his crucifixion, promised his disciples wisdom in these unfortunate situations. Let me read three passages from the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. I'm not going to distinguish whether they are parallel passages or whether they're different instances. A lot of times that's hard to tell. I don't have time to go back and figure all that out. So I'll just read them. Mark 13:11. So when they arrest you and hand you over, don't worry beforehand what you will say. On the contrary, whatever is given to you in that hour, say it. For it isn't you speaking, it's the Holy Spirit. That means it's not you merely speaking, it's the Holy Spirit. Luke 21:15 For I will give you such words and a wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. Matthew 10:18 through 20 You will even be brought before governors and kings before because of me to bear witness to them and to the nations. But when they hand you over don't worry about how or what you should speak for you will be given what to say at that hour because you are not speaking but the spirit of your father is speaking through you. Now of course that refers to the nations to more than just the Jewish nation it refers to the Gentile nations. But all these three verses together say that show that Jesus prepared his disciples to rely on the Holy Spirit when they got in trouble, and he knew they were going to get in trouble. They were going to get persecuted. And so Peter gives a Holy Spirit defense. 
Now, just shortly before in the hall of Caiaphas, in the courtroom of Caiaphas, he denied Jesus through fear of a servant girl. Hey, I know you're from Galilee. You were one of his disciples, weren't you? I am not. I am not. Denied Jesus three times. Oh, what a difference Pentecost and the Holy Spirit make in an individual. Peter went from being a treacherous coward to a bold witness in very adverse circumstances. Now, you notice that when Peter gave his started his defense here, he addressed the people very politely. He says, rulers of the people and elders. He gave them their due as their title. John Gill points that out. And then he continues in verse 9 through 10. And this is how he starts out in his defense. If we are being examined today about a good deed done to a disabled man, by what means he was healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified and whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing here before you healthy. First point, raised from the dead, the resurrection. Critical point, critical part of the gospel message in the early church. Now, notice Peter's defense. First of all, he says in verse 9, a good deed. Ooh, what's wrong with you Pharisees? You complaining about somebody being healed? We did a good deed. He just threw that in there very quickly by, by saying good deed. And notice that he says, he points out that the man was healed by what means he was healed. Well, how how did that happen, Pharisees, excuse me, Sadducees and rulers? How did that happen? The man was healed. You can't deny it. Everybody saw it. And everybody knew who this man was. He'd been there for 40 years begging at the beautiful gate. So he appeals to the healing, a sign, a signpost that points to heaven. He pointed out there was a good deed. They didn't do anything evil. And then he goes on off after that was defense. Now he goes on offense in verse 10. He says, you crucified him. (laughs) Oh, and then he says, God raised him from the dead. You killed him. God raised him. What a contrast. Maybe you guys are on the wrong side. Maybe you might want to think about getting on God's side instead of your side. You murder. He's basically saying you murderers. Now, this is I've already pointed out in previous chapters in Acts 2, 3 and 4. Peter directly told the Jewish leaders that they were murderers, that they had crucified Jesus. That's boldness, folks. That's boldness of the Holy Spirit. You can read about that in Acts 2.23, Acts 3.15, and here in this verse in Acts 4.10. He he just keeps telling them, you murderers. He wasn't a seeker-friendly evangelist. Now, notice that Peter uh, uh, appeals to the lame man who's standing there. This man is standing here before you healthy. He appeals to his evidence state excuse me, defense exhibit number one, exhibit, defense exhibit A. He's standing here healed by the name of Jesus. Now, why was the lame man there? And John Gill says that the Sanhedrin might have brought him in to try to find fraud if they could. I don't think that was, if that's true, I don't think it was very smart because all it does is give perfect evidence buttressing Peter and John's case that Jesus was healed. Or it could be, as John Gill points out, that formerly, the formerly lame man came on his own when he heard that his benefactors were on trial. He wanted to say, hey, what's going on here? Why are you trying the people that got me healed after 40 years of being lame? All right, let's sum up the advantages Peter had in this hearing before the Sanhedrin. He did have some advantages, as Adam Clark said. The healing was notorious and undeniable. The infirmity was long-standing and well-known. Over 40 years, the guy had been there, lame. The healed man was easily identifiable because he was at the same place all the time at the beautiful gate. There was nothing that the ruling elders could say. So Peter had some good evidence on his side. Acts 4.11, 
Peter continues in his defense before the Sanhedrin. This Jesus is the stone rejected by you builders, which has become the cornerstone. You builders mean you builders of the Jewish order, Second Temple order, I think it was called. You builders of the rabbinic system, you rejected Jesus, threw him out like a like a broken stone in a building in a building. Throw that throw through the throw through the stone out into the rubbish heap. That's what you did, and now he's the cornerstone of Israel. The new Israel. Now, cornerstone could be capstone. The Greek is ambiguous. But the point is, is a building ain't going to stand. If you take the capstone out, it's going to fall down. You take the cornerstone out, it's going to fall down. The point is, is that Jesus is the strong stone holding up the new Israel, the church of Jesus Christ. Ooh, what a slap in the face that must have been to these big shots. Of course, Peter is quoting, as he often does, the Old Testament. Peter was, you know, we always say he's an, I always say, I've been saying it a lot, he's an unlearned, illiterate fisherman, but he knew the Scriptures. He quoted the Scriptures a lot, as we see here in Acts, chapter 2, 3, and 4. He's quoting the Scriptures all the time. Quoted Joel on Pentecost, Joel chapter 2. Here's the Scripture he's quoting, Psalm 118, verse 22. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Psalm 118.22. The NIV Study Bible notes concerning this, that fulfilled prophecy was an important element in early Christian sermons and defenses. Now, we don't use that so much today, and I really think it's because we don't witness the Jews so much. I think it's a great way to witness to a Jew who happens to believe in the authority of the Old Testament. Most Jews today are totally secular. They don't believe in anything except matzo balls <laughs> so, uh, or Jewish weddings or something. You know, it's just a cultural thing. They don't believe in God, half of them. So, but back then they did, and so they appealed to prophecy, and that made a lot of sense because Peter was preaching to Jews. Now, Jesus also quoted that same psalm. That's, in fact, that psalm is quoted a lot. Psalm 118, verse, excuse me, I just quoted that. Uh, Matthew 21, 42, this is where Jesus quoted Psalm 118, 22. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This came from the Lord and is wonderful in our eyes. Jesus was already dealing with his rejection before he died. 1 Peter 2, 7, so honor will come to you who believe it. But for the unbelieving, the stone for the builders rejected, this one has become the cornerstone. Peter repeats what he told the Sanhedrin. He repeated in his letter that he wrote 1 Peter 2, 7. Paul also mentioned it in Romans 9:33, as it is written, Look, I am putting a stone in Zion to stumble over and a rock to trip over. Yet the one who believes in him will not be put to shame. That's sort of an allusion to it rather than a quotation. Isaiah 28, verse 16, Therefore the Lord said, Look, I have laid a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. The one who believes will be unshakable. Here's the point of the analogy. As John Gill points out, stones are strong, they're long-lasting, and they're useful. The cornerstone, or the capstone, depending on how you translate the verb, the, the word, the, that stone is foundational in holding the structure of a building together as I've already mentioned. Verse 12 in Acts 4, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to people, and we must be saved by it. No one else? Salvation in no one else? Oh, I wish the modern latitudinarians would read that verse carefully and ponder on it. That's it. It ain't Buddha that's going to save you. It ain't Muhammad that's going to save you. It's not Xi Jinping, Mao Zedong, Ping that's going to save you. It's not Nancy Pelosi and Alexandria or Ocasio-Cortez is going to save you from the impending climate doom. No, it's only one way to be saved through Jesus Christ. 
no one else. Here's some other scriptures that point out that embarrassingly intolerant and exclusive idea. John 14:6. Jesus told him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's it. Oh, how intolerant. How narrow-minded Jesus, the Son of God, was. 1 Timothy 2, 5, there is one God and one mediator between God and humanity, Christ Jesus, himself human. You know, I really think the reason uh, Antichrist today, you know, people who hate Jesus are constantly talking about tolerance, first of all, is because they're repressing the fact that they are the most intolerant people in the world, but it's also because they don't like the fact that their one way to salvation was actually intolerant of all other religions. He really was. He says, no, those people are going to lead you to hell. I'm going to lead you to heaven. Chew on that, postmodern snowflake millennials. Chew on that. And you say, well, you're not being kind. You can't talk like that to people. Well, I, let me point out that Peter, when he talked to the Sanhedrin, called them murderers over and over again. And yet he loved them, actually, because he called them brothers. He was trying to convert them. But he didn't mince his words about the sin that they were committing. And he didn't mince his words about the truth. And the truth is, there's only one way to salvation is through Jesus Christ. That's it. There ain't no other way. Now, Peter says here there is no other name under heaven that they may, that people, that we, and we must be saved by that name. Of course, you're not saved by a name. You're not saved by reciting Jesus like a mantra. That's the typical New Testament way of saying there's, the name stands for the whole person, the whole person of Jesus. So there's no other name. There's no other person who has the authority to get us saved. That's what that means. The idea of name is, is shown again by Luke in Acts 10:43. All the prophets testify about him that through his name, everyone who believes in him will receive forgiveness of sins. And it doesn't mean, like I say, just as J-E-S-U-S, it means everything that Jesus, that J-E-S-U-S stands for. Acts 4, 13 through 14, when they observed, that means the Sanhedrin, observed the boldness of Peter and John and realized that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and recognized that they had been with Jesus. And since they saw the man who had been healed standing with them, they had nothing to say in response. So Peter completely shut his persecutors down. Shut them down. They were speechless. I love it when this kind of thing happens. Of course, the boldness of Peter, that, of course, came from the Holy Spirit. Here's what John Gill says about that. With what courage and intrepidity, that's a great word there, intrepidity. With what courage and intrepidity they stood before them the presence of mind they had, and the freedom of speech they used. Adam Clark says they were now speaking under the direct power of the Holy Spirit. Oh, Peter and John were uneducated and untrained. They were nothing burger fishermen. They were not trained in any rabbinic school. As they now he studied Bible and Jameson Foster and Brown point out, that's probably what they, the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin meant by untrained. They hadn't gone to a rabbinic school anywhere. And yet they talked rings around these big-shot scholars and political and religious leaders. I'll make an application point here. The uneducated and untrained evangelist is much more likely to regard God's miraculous power even today and have more success. Look at how people in India are getting saved by the bucket loads. Barefoot evangelists, same thing in China. I've, I've talked to them in China. I've seen them. I, I mean, I'll never forget the day when we had to leave a farmhouse where we were doing a seminar, a training seminar, and these people who had given up everything, including some people who gave up their college educations from relatively well-to-do families, but a lot of them were just uneducated. They were high school graduates, let's put it that way. And they were sleeping in the fields, and and I, 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 we gathered there before them about 
two or three in the morning because we had to flee because somebody said the cops were coming, the, the Chinese cops were coming, and they were very calm, and we listened to their story, and every day they went out and slept in the fields. Sun came up, and as the farmers came in to bring their produce into the city to to sell, the evangelists would walk in with the farmers as a shield so that people wouldn't know what they were doing. They would evangelize during the day, so the cops out of view of the cops, and then they would walk back with the farmers at night and sleep in the darn open air. So they didn't have anything, but by golly, do they spread the gospel. I mean, I could tell you lots of stories like that about it happening in China, and I've read about it happening in, in Asia, excuse me, in India. So uneducated and untrained men. Now, I know that Presbyterians and reform types love education. Actually, I don't have anything against education. Uh, education. Paul was educated. He was much more educated than Peter. So I'm not trying to make a blanket statement that one is better than the other. But I will say this, money and education can very quickly get in the way of relying directly on the Holy Spirit. Very, very quickly. And all of you educated and and wealthy men who might be listening to this, watch your flanks. Watch it out. Watch out. Be careful because you can get tripped up by something that's actually a good thing. Notice in verse 13 that the Sanhedrin recognized that they, Peter and John, had been with Jesus. In other words, at first they heard about the healing, they might not have realized that they had two of the original 12 apostles of Jesus, and they had them right before their eyes. They say, oh, now we're getting right back to the horse's mouth here. Of course, as Gil points out, how did the Sanhedrin know that these disciples were with, with Jesus? They recalled that Jesus, with those apostles, had been teaching in Jerusalem in the temple area right during Passion Week, during the last week of Jesus' life. Acts 4, verses 15 through 17, After they had ordered them to leave the Sanhedrin, they conferred among themselves, saying, What should we do with these men? For an obvious sign, evident to all who live in Jerusalem, has been done through them, and we cannot deny it. However, so this does not spread any further among the people, let's threaten them again against speaking to anyone in this name again. What are we going to do, they asked. Well, here were their options. They could whip them, scourge them. Or they could detain them longer and keep them in custody, a little bit lesser punishment. Or they could just let them go. They decided to let them go. Notice when they said that this, uh, this sign was obvious, that it was done obvious. Even haters of Jesus couldn't deny the miracle that was right in front of their eyes. That's what I love about a credentialed miracle. A heavily witnessed and expertly witnessed miracle is hard to deny. You don't have claims of fakery flying around when that happens. Now, they were trying to keep the doctrine from spreading, verse 17, so this does not spread any further. Obviously, it has been spreading. We either got 5,000 or 8,000 people converted already, roughly. But uh, whether the doctrine of Jesus had spread through Jerusalem, maybe, it, uh, uh, or whether it spread even further into Israel, John Gill thinks so, that the good news had already left Jerusalem was spreading all around Israel. But well, whether that's true or not, we know that the gospel is moving, and the Sanhedrin was powerless to do anything about it. We go to verses 18 and 20, 18, 19, and 20, Acts chapter 4. So they called for them and ordered them not to preach, teach it all in the name of Jesus. So that's what their final solution was. We'll let you go, but you keep your mouth shut. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it's right in the sight of God for us to listen to you rather than to God, you decide. For we are un unable to stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. Acts 5.29, in a similar situation, Peter and the apostles replied, We must obey God rather than men. This shows that Christians do not owe blind allegiance to civil authority. Generally, 
Christians are commanded to obey the magistrates, Romans 13.1, everyone must submit to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist are instituted by God. Sure, in general, in questions of rape, stealing, murder, slander, libel, you know, your typical criminal activities, sure, you're supposed to obey the government. You're supposed to pay your taxes even. But not when the government tells you you can't witness about Jesus. I remember I was in Shanghai teaching a college class, and a young man comes up to me and said he'd been hired by the Shanghai police, and he had a list of rules and regulations for Christians, and he wanted to translate it into English. And so he had started on the translation, so I got to see the uh, the what the the rules and regulations were, and basically was you got to keep your mouth shut. You can believe it. It's in the Constitution. We have religious freedom. You can believe what you want, but you don't tell anybody about it. And I thought, oh, my gosh, you're going to try to stop the spread of the gospel, this kind of nonsense. You're making it illegal to talk about Christ, you know. Gave me sort of a jaundiced negative view of Chinese, the Chinese political situation as they are getting ready to rape Hong Kong. No, Christians are not supposed to obey the civil authorities when they tell them something. Authority has its fears. A father has authority over his children, but he doesn't have the authority to beat them to death because that violates the civil authority. The civil authority has authority to throw you in jail for that, but the civil authority has no authority to keep you from preaching Jesus, and so forth. But now notice that even though they were defying authority, they weren't being obnoxious about it. Here's Jameson Fawcett and Brown's comment, quote, There is here a wonderful union of sober, respectful appeal to the better reason of their judges, and calm, deep determination to abide the consequences of a constrained testimony, which betokens a power above their own resting upon them according to promise, which is the most fancy way of saying, we're going to keep preaching and not a darn thing you can do to stop us, with all due respect. Acts chapter 4, verses 21 and 22. After threatening them, that's Peter and John, further, they, the Sanhedrin, released them, released Peter and John. They found no way to punish them, to punish Peter and John, because the people were all giving the glory to God over what had been done. So now the people are on the side of the apostles. Instead of saying, crucify him, give us Barabbas, now they're saying, wow, man, Jesus healed this man. Verse 22, for this sign of healing had been performed on a man over 40 years old. And what that means is he'd been there for 40 years. There's no big deal about a sign being performed on a man over 40 years old, but what the big deal was, he'd been in front of that gate for 40 years, and everybody knew it, and now he's walking around. The people were giving glory to God. The Sanhedrin could care less about that. They cared less about justice. They didn't care. Their decision was based merely upon self-interested pragmatism. We've got to let them go and tell them to not talk. They weren't looking for a just verdict. If it was a just verdict, they'd let them go. Let them teach what they wanted to teach. If it's true, it's true. If it's false, it's false. But they knew that there could have been an insurrection if Peter and John had been punished further than they were punished, as Adam Clark points out, and so they had to let them go because of the fear of the people. All right, thus ends our discussion of Acts chapter 4, verses 1 through 22, the trial of Peter and John before the Sanhedrin. Next audio, we'll start with verse 23 and go to verse 37, the end of, the, end of chapter 4, and we'll talk about more preaching that the apostles did in the temple there, temple complex. And then we'll hear the story about how they held everything in common. Hope you stay tuned for that audio, and I hope you enjoyed this one. <laughs>